Never gets old. I stand in awe of a God who loves us so much that he would send his only begotten son to die for our sins so that we could have a right to be in relationship with him. That song just blessed my soul this morning. The last three songs we sang, really. But that thought that I'm not standing because I figured it out. I'm not standing because I've studied long enough, well enough, and I'm good enough. But I'm standing in the victory of the cross. Doesn't that just make about five of you want to jump up and run for just a moment? I know we're going to be regal and dignified, but I mean, thank you. I felt it. It was light, but it was good. (laughs) Keep it coming. I just, I feel that in my soul on this morning. I always try to get up and, all right, Michael, we're going to go in Exodus, but then we sing and it gets me every single time. I got to rest my vocal cords a little bit. Exodus chapter 25 is where we're going to be this morning. If you have the Bible, you could turn there uh, with us. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 22. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been in the book of Exodus since January, and we're going to be in the book of Exodus through the end of November. And as we prayerfully considered uh, last year how the Lord might lead us to unpack this very rich and dense book, the book of Exodus, uh, we had prayerfully thought through and broke the book up into three sections. For our own help, we called them Acts. Uh, Act 1, we looked at earlier in the year, and we saw God as a God who rescues a people. And then we went into Act 2, where we saw that God is a God who raises up a people. And today, we're starting in Act 3, so we're in the last third, if you will, of the book of Exodus, and we're going to be reminded and see that we have a God who's in relationship with his people, and we're going to understand better prayerfully by the time we get to November of just how God looks to be with us and what it means for us to be with a God who is so relational. So I'm excited about uh, what God is going to do over the next few months. I'm overjoyed to be able to share just a little bit of what God has been really stirring up in my heart, encouraging, correcting, rebuking, exhorting, just a whole slew of things as been looking at Exodus 25. Uh, Before we dive into it, I do ask that you would pray with me and pray for me as we prepare to go into God's word. Father, we are grateful that you and your grace and your mercy would give us this treasure trove that we call the Bible, where we get to see your character, know who you are, and respond rightly to you. And so, Lord, as we prepare to go through this last third of this great book, we pray that you would continue to speak to our hearts, that we might understand even more that you are a relational redeemer, that you did not simply rescue and then put off, but you desire to be with your people and for your people to be with you. And, Lord, may you minister that to us in such a way that we stand in awe of this truth, but that we would also be moved by this truth to live for you, to love you, and to love others as you have called us to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. We thank you, Lord. Amen. Exodus 25, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him You shall receive the contribution for me. 
And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Goat's hair. Tanned ram's skins. Goat's skins. Acacia wood. Oil for the lamps. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for setting. For the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim of its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. The word of God is good all by itself. As we prepare to look at Exodus 25 and unpack the what and the why of this passage I first want to take a look at the previous chapter and remind us of where Moses is, why he's there, and how he got to where he is. And we can look at Exodus 24 and verse 17 and 18 and see where Moses is. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So here, as we prepare to go into chapter 25, Moses is in the mountain, Mount Sinai, surrounded by at least what the people see as a devouring fire on a mountain. He's in the presence of God. And the reason why Moses went there, we see in verse 12 of chapter 24, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone. 
and the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses went up into the mountain because God called him into the mountain that he might give him these tablets of stone, which we'll see a little bit more today and throughout the rest of our time in Exodus. And the Lord also was going to give Moses some instructions that we're going to be unpacking a little bit more in chapters 25 through chapter 31 of Exodus. And the reason why the Lord called Moses up into the mountain to get these tablets was because, as Sean had taught on last week, the children of Israel entered into a covenant with their creator. Moses read from the book of the covenant all the words of God and the rules of God, and the people of God responded that they would obey, they would do all that God says. And then the contract, this covenant, was signed by the blood of the covenant. And so now the people of God enter into this covenant with God. So Moses called up to come to God to get the tablets that the commandments of God will be written on. And so now Moses is in what looks like a devouring fire in the presence of God, just hanging out for 40 days and 40 nights. <clears throat> and what we see now in chapter 25 understanding where Moses is and why he is there, is this conversation that's happening, or more so the instructions. Moses doesn't say much throughout this period. He's just being a good listener. What God is sharing with Moses for him to go and take to the people. And we saw that God first tells Moses to take a contribution from the people. Now, this is not a shakedown where God is trying to get some things from the people. Hey, I want some money. Go let the people know if we're going to be in covenant, they have to pay. No, this is God inviting his people to be in relationship with him and to partner with him as he desires to be with them. And so the Lord tells Moses, we see in verse 2, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. So this is a free will offering. If your heart is moved to give a contribution to the Lord, then you come gladly with your contribution and bring it to the Lord. But the Lord also lets Moses know what the contribution is to be. It's not just bring any and everything you want. Don't bring hay and wheat. No, he says gold, silver, all this yarn, fine twine, linen, wood, oil, lamp. So he's, he's bring all of these things. This is the contribution that I want from the people that they can bring to me. And if they are willing, then they can come and bring this contribution. But just so that we can remember and be very clear and understand that this is not a shakedown, we have to remember, and we've been in this passage for some time now, that the people of Israel spent the last 430 years in slavery. At least to the Egyptians, their captors, they were considered nothing, and they had nothing. God considered them people that he loved, that he treasured, and that he was willing to rescue. And so God, in his grace, his mercy, his infinite wisdom, sent Moses back to go and free his people from slavery. So when God found Israel, they were in Egypt considered nothing and having nothing. And God sends Moses back, and God, in telling Moses that he's going to free his people, lets Moses know that not only are they going to come out of Egypt, but they're not going to come out of Egypt empty-handed. So in Exodus chapter 3, this was the last time Moses was on the mountain talking to the bush that was burning but not burning down. God said this to Moses, verses 20 
through 22 of Exodus chapter 3. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he, being Pharaoh, will let you go. And I, God, will give this people, the people of Israel, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty-handed. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians." So the people of Israel left Egypt with gold, silver, and all of this fine linen because God gave them favor. After beating down Egypt, they were all too glad to give their things away. And what I love what the word does here, the Lord says the warriors that are going to win the day, that are going to take the plunder, the women will take the plunder. Look at God. I don't even have time to deal with it the way that I'd like to. And your sons and daughters will carry the clothing. So when you see this done, you're going to know that it was nobody but God. It's not the mighty men of valor. No, God is going to do it, and he's raising up an army, and he said the women are going to be the ones who walk out with the things. They're going to ask, and you're going to take, and you're going to plunder your enemy. So now here is God, fast forward, on the same mountain talking to Moses, but now it's not just the burning bush. It's the whole mountain. That looks like it's burning down. And God is telling Moses, go ask for a contribution from a group of people that have been in slavery all their life. Well, where are they getting the contribution from? I hooked them up. They got all of it. So when God enters in and says, for those who are willing, well, what do you say to the God who gave you everything you have? He could say, give it all to me. But he said, make a contribution if you feel so moved. We'll see later that they felt moved, and rightfully so, because they knew that everything that they had came from a God who rescued them, who raised them up, and now we're seeing why he's asking for this contribution, because he desires to be in relationship with them. So even more than the contribution, it's what God was looking to do with those things that were going to be contributed. And the Lord tells us in verse 8 of chapter 25, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God wants this contribution so that the people of God can make a sanctuary. Now, we may think sanctuary is like this room, but actually sanctuary means a sacred place, a holy place. So in this case, the Lord lets us know that the tabernacle and all the furniture that was to be built was going to be a sanctuary. It was going to be a sacred place, the divine dwelling place of God, willing to be with his people. God is asking for a contribution from his people who he gave everything to so that they can build a space where he can dwell with them. The devouring fire. That can't be contained by the mountain. The one whose foot makes earth an ottoman. Says, build a space. Because I want to be with you. I want to settle down. That's what that word dwell means. I want to remain with you. So God's inviting his people. Who had nothing. Who he gave everything to. To give just a little bit. Because he wants to be with them. He wants to remain with them. 
Sean talked about it last week, this covenant being more of a picture of a marriage covenant as we can try to understand it today. And we see that's exactly what God is saying. I'm not looking to date. I'm not looking to court. I want to settle down. I want to be with you, and I want you to be with me. And God invites his people to be in this relationship. And this is all the result, again, because of what we saw in chapter 24, the people of God have entered into this covenant relationship. And God looking to be with his people, gives them instructions to see that happen. But let us not miss that there was a requirement. Verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. And we're going to look today and see one of the articles, one of the pieces of furniture that God gave instruction to build. And we're going to look at the rest of the furniture and the tabernacle that God gives instructions. He was very clear. It wasn't, oh, you know what? Purple is not my favorite color. What if we went with fuchsia? You go ahead and build what you want to, but that's not going to be the sacred place. Then I don't know what that place is. You need to follow the instructions to the letter. God's not having a conversation. He's not asking for input. He doesn't care about your interior decorating background. Make it the way I said it, and we be cool. Don't, can I say we be cool? God wouldn't have said it that way. But we're going to be all right. Just follow the instructions to a T, and you'll create a space where you and I can be together. And so then God gives these instructions, which I'm going to do really good. I've been practicing all week not to dive deep into the Ark of the Covenant. But it's really hard not to. <clears throat> but the Lord says, I'm, I'm going to try. We got a little bit of time. And I'm going to see what I can shave off and what we can keep on. The Lord gives these instructions to build the Ark. Essentially, it's a box, about four feet long, roughly about two feet high and two feet wide. Cover it, pure gold. Poles, pure gold. It may have been just a box initially, but once you overlay, it's like, man, that's a nice box, though. <clears throat> right? It was the ark. And the ark was to house the tablets, the tablets that God had told Moses to come onto the mountain to receive. Again, I'm just going to touch on it just briefly so that we can understand what these tablets are, but we'll unpack it. You just got to keep coming back until the end of November if you want to get the full picture. But just a quick glimpse of what these tablets were so that we can have a better understanding of how important this Ark and the Ark of the Covenant was to the nation of Israel. Chapter 32, this is a little bit later while Moses was up in the mountain still. God gives him these tablets and it lets us know what these tablets are. Verses 15 and 16. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. Now you can look at Deuteronomy 10 and you can look at some other passages to, to see that these tablets and what was written on them were the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments that God spoke himself, as we saw in Exodus 20, to the people of God through the fire and sounded like thunder. And the people were like, okay, thank you, uh, God, for that time. Now, Moses, you go be uh, the in-between because we just don't want to hear God's voice like that again. So those Ten Commandments that God spoke himself, now he wrote out himself. Don't you just wonder, just stay with me for just a moment, right? This is just, 
Welcome into the mind of Michael. It's a scary place at times, but don't just wonder, like, what was God's penmanship like? You know, just, did he... You're right. <clears throat> Reel it back in. So that's what I was thinking a little bit. But I was just curious. Just God wrote it with his own finger, writes out the commands. Like, God, you could have got a, somebody else just chiseled that thing in. But God himself carved out the wood, wrote the wood. I just want to pause there because isn't that so personal and intimate that God said, I am with you and I'm going to write these words out for you. These were the tablets that God was calling Moses up to get and to put in the ark. Put in the ark the testimony that I shall give you. So Moses was going to take the testimony, which this word testimony can also be translated witness. Right? So this covenant, it was going to be a reminder that the people of God were in relationship with God and what that meant for them and what that meant for God. And so this witness, this testimony, these tablets were to go in this really nice box that God had given Moses instructions to carve out. And then the Lord goes on to tell Moses how he's going to finish off this box. He tells him to make a mercy seat of pure gold, the same length and width of the ark, so about four feet long, about two feet wide, and put it on top of the ark. And then to carve out, to hammer out some cherubim, angelic beings, which again, Moses didn't ask. God was... Likely going to give him instructions. Like, and what does a cherubim look like, by the way, as I'm hammering here? But Moses takes those instructions, and they're going to make this mercy seat. <clears throat> and now God lets him know how to put this piece together. He says, we see here in verse 20 and 21, the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. So this is how what we can look at in Joshua or later on is now referred to as the ark of the covenant. When it's fully assembled, the people refer to it as the ark of the covenant. And it makes sense because it was holding the two tablets that reminded the people of the covenant. So this ark of the covenant has the mercy seat with the cherubim and the ark that has the testimony in it. The ark of the covenant. Now, again, there's a lot of things that we can talk about with the Ark of the Covenant. How, uh, again, in Leviticus 16, you can go look at it later yourself, how this was going to be the place where the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement for the people. In Joshua, they were to carry the Ark of the Covenant, and the priest would stand in the water, and then the Jordan would split open, and then the people would walk through, and then the Ark would come through, and the water would close back in. The priest would carry the Ark around the wall of Jericho. You thought that the people did something? No, it was a reminder that the presence of God was with his people, and that's what brought the victory. You can go look at the kings and how they leaned on the ark, and when they weren't working and walking with God, it didn't matter what they had. They didn't have God. So there's a lot that you can look at and read through about the ark of the covenant, but none of that is told to Moses right here, right now. There is one thing that God lets Moses know about this ark of the covenant that would be vital to Moses, the man of God who was leading the people of God to the promised land that God had for his people. Verse 22, there, the ark of the covenant, I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. 
about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. There, on this four foot by two foot wide box, and the mercy seat sat on it. There, above the cherubim, I'll meet with you. This word meet means to appoint. I'm appointing a place that I am going to be with you and speak to you. Now, let's just remember, again, that's why I wanted to remind us of where Moses was and what he was experiencing. It says the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. This is the creator of the universe. And he is going to promise to his son who is serving his purposes that I'm going to meet with you in a four by two box. Anybody else? How do you do that? How do you fit in that space? But even more mind-blowing is that God would create a place that he would meet with Moses. Now, get a little bit ahead of myself. We'll, again, get there when we get to Exodus 33. But the word lets us know that God spoke to Moses face to face like a man speaks with his friend. God created this place for Moses to build this and fix it this way. And then know that I will meet with you there. That's the appointed spot that I'm going to speak to you like a man speaks to his friend. So now again, the Ark of the Covenant, it cannot be understated how critical it was in the life of the nation of Israel. But before we get to all of that... For Moses, it's my special spot where I go, sit down, and be with God. You know, my mother used to have a prayer closet. She would take a carpet. It wasn't even a carpet. It was a rug. I like, Mommy, that is no padding for your knees. I would remember going to bed and seeing her praying, and waking up and seeing her praying. Now, as a kid, I thought she may have been there all night, and honestly, sometimes she was. And she would go into this spot, sit on what was a dusty rag, probably at best for most of us, and put a a cover over her head, and it was her and Jesus. She went to a meeting spot where she just wanted to be alone, be quiet, to be with God. God tells Moses, I'm creating a space. I can be with you and speak to you. Now, if you just stop at the Old Testament, you think, well, that's great for Moses that God created out a place for him, and that's great for the people of Israel that God told them to build a space where they can dwell with him and that he can dwell with them. But here's what we have to understand. The same God desires the same thing for his people today. God still longs. to dwell with his people. This thing has just got me so full at the thought of this God so big I can't even wrap my mind around him. Would want to dwell with his people. You can tell the impact my mother had on me because the way my mother explained it to me is what really captured my heart on this week. 
I can't do it like she would. She was the greatest storyteller of all time, in my humble opinion. But she would say, God is so big. And she's about four foot, so she'd make herself as long as she could. It was only five foot at that point. But you get the point. God is so big, you can't get over him. He's so wide that you can't get around him. He's so deep that you can't go under him. And he's so itty-bitty that he fits right in your heart. My, I can't, can't wrap my mind around that. That the devouring fire would be willing to be personal and intimate with someone who on all other standards is considered insignificant and worthless. But he says you're worth it. And that same God who is communicating to his people that he's a relational redeemer is telling us I'm that way today. And Jesus communicates those words. And we see that in the recording of the gospel according to John in chapter 15. I won't read it all, but I, I wanted it to be brought up on the screen just because I want you to see it. If you don't have a Bible, you can see it on the screen. If you do have a Bible, turn there so you can see it in the Bible that you're going to hold on to. Maybe you want to underline a couple of words here. Definitely one word that I'm going to encourage you to underline if you have a writing utensil. If you don't have a Bible, just a quick plug. You can go. There's a Bible on the back uh, table. Grab that. Keep it. Open it up. Use it. Read it. <clears throat> But you want to hold on to the word because it's the only thing that's going to hold on to you. John 15, this personal, intimate, relational redeemer didn't just want it for the nation of Israel. He wants it for you as well. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you, the words of Jesus. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life. For his friend. Now in Hermeneutics 101, the interpretation of scripture, one of the key points that you'll learn is that repetition is important. If you see something in a passage two or three times, highlight that. Take note and start to dig in deeper. Do a word study on that. Start to get some context and understanding about this point. Right? And so take that, run with it. 
If you see something two or three times, pause and dig a little bit deeper. Nine times in about a paragraph worth of words, the word abide is repeated if you have the ESV version. So if you are to highlight two or three words, the alarm should be going off full blast when one word is repeated nine times in less than a paragraph of text. Jesus, not because he couldn't figure out a synonym, not because he couldn't think of a better way to dress it up, but because he wanted to drive home this point. Abide in me and I in you. This word abide means to remain. Settle down. Dwell. Sound familiar? The same word. The same God is encouraging his people and calling his people to the same thing. Abide in me and I in you. You can't do nothing unless you abide in me. You can bear much fruit if you abide in me. And Jesus is saying that he desires to abide in us. It's a relationship. And he's calling his people to be in relationship with him. A personal God. And again, Jesus, who is so personal, so intimate, that he puts on flesh so that he can come and pursue us. And now he's saying, I want you to be in relationship with me. Dwell with me. Remain in me. And Jesus doesn't leave us to guess, just like the children of Israel, to the exact measurements. Carve out this space so that we can be together. Jesus says... This is what you have to do to experience this kind of love relationship where we dwell together, where we're in intimate relationship and close proximity with one another. Obey my commandments. Do what I say. And you will abide in me and I will abide in you and my joy will be in you and your joy will be full. What's the commandment, Jesus? Love one another. Because I have loved you. I don't even have time to go there like I feel it in my soul. But isn't it wild that one of the most difficult things to do is to love one another? Just talking about it uh, with my brother Sean this morning, some of the things that we're hearing and seeing in the area with ministries that are just going in different directions because of disagreements. In this case, what we're talking about, like, that's right. But in many cases, it's a lot of preferential things. Like, oh, Michael, I didn't like the way you say that. You know what? You're right. And we talked about that before, reconciling relationships, repent, forgive. But we should be a people who are willing to love each other, walk well together, because that's the commandment that God calls us to. And when we live in obedience to his commandments, we are with him and he is with us. So what's the contribution that you bring so that this space can be created? You. You are the contribution. Bring yourself, Romans would say, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. It's your reasonable service. Accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But listen to what I just said and what the scriptures tell us. As your Lord and Savior. Not just as your Savior, where Lord I accept the finished work of the cross, but also as your Lord, I submit to your rule and I surrender my way. 
And I'm going to do whatever you say. You are my Lord and Savior. And then we obey his commands and we love the way that he loved us. If we just start doing that revolutionary, what you start to see happen in the body and then around people who have touch points with those who are part of this great love fest called relationship with God and the people of God. And so God says, you are that space. And we see as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Lord still has a place that he wants us to carve out so that he can dwell with us. A place that he's appointed so that he can meet with us and speak to us face to face like a man speaks with his friend. I know it may be wild to think about, tough to imagine. That's why I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to take the word's word for it. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you don't, make a mental note. Go back and look at this later so that you can remember this and read this section for yourself. We're going to read verses 15 through 20. You do good to read chapter 6 in its entirety. And maybe even go on to chapter 7. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord by accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? This word temple can be properly translated as a sanctuary, a divine dwelling place. A holy habitation. Do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit? So big you can't get over. So wide you can't get around him. So deep you can't go under him. But so intimate and personal that he'd make your body his holy habitation. Freely. Whatever you want, Jesus. What contribution do I withhold? You want all of me? I really don't have much to give. <clears throat> but if all of me is all you want from me, then I'm going to give you all that I've got. But this is the space that you want to carve out so that you can meet with me, the appointed place where God is looking to meet with us like a man meets with a friend. 
The Gospels let us know that this is true. When Jesus died on the cross, the scriptures say the veil was torn in two. The veil was this massive curtain, which again, we'll read as we're reading through the building of the temple, that separated the holy place from the most holy place. This most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, that the high priest can only go into once a year. And at that, he had to kill a bull and get himself right before he went in. And he had to have incense to create some smoke so that he couldn't lay his eyes on the holiness of the Ark of the Covenant because God created that as a space to meet with his people. And then he had to sprinkle some blood on the mercy seat so that it can clear up the sins of the people. And then he had to quietly ease his way back on out. See you next year if I have the privilege. And when Jesus died on the cross, tore it in two and said, enter in to the joy of the Lord. We no longer have a veil that separates us from a loving creator. He says, you now are my most holy place. You are a temple. I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. And because this is true, He says, don't join yourself with things that don't align with what's holy, righteous, and good. God, the great creator of the universe, who needs no thing and no one, first had to save you and I so that we could even come to a place of looking to be in relationship with him. And then after he did all of that, he makes the move to say, I'm going to fill you with my spirit because I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to settle down with you. I identify with you. You identify with me. You are that holy place. So I picture my mother on a dirty rag with a cloth over her head going into her quiet place but I also picture that person who's stressed out and overwhelmed and just needs to step out for a moment and they go into the bathroom because they need to have a moment. Like, here? Now? Yeah, no better place. Because it's not the physical space. He's right here, right now. So I don't have to travel hundreds of miles on the Day of Atonement to go and give a sacrifice. Right here, right now. No better place than the present. Lord, I need you. I need you right here, right now. And he says, I'm already with you. I see you. I know you. I love you. And I meet you in that place. If we can grab a hold of this truth and believe this, to be true because of what God says in his word. The same God who gives instruction to his people to build the sanctuary. The same God who gives instruction to his servant to build the Ark of the Covenant so that he can dwell with his people, so that he can meet with his servant. Is the same God who says, I now put flesh on my son so that he can make a way so that I can dwell with you and you could dwell with me and I can meet with you and speak to you and lead you and guide you. Let me ask you, what contribution do you withhold from him? Right. 
Now let me ask you, what is it that you need to let go of so that you can give your all to him? I want to invite the praise team back up because this is where encouraging, exhorting, also charging and challenging. Because as I was processing this passage, remember this week I was sitting down and I just needed some downtime. It's been, it's been a tough season. Right, I just wanted to veg out a little bit. So I was sitting down looking to see what was on Netflix, Hulu, on something. And I'm watching, and I turn on a movie. And I look, and I'm like, oh, turn it off. <clears throat> turn it off. And then I'm, I'm determined, you know, because I've got to watch something. I just got to. Then I see something. I was like, oh. All right, not that either. And then finally, I found something that was at least not as bad as the first two. But I'm looking at it, and the whole time I'm thinking to myself, it's like what it says here in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. It's like, that's not helpful. It's not helpful. And I'm not telling you this so that you can feel this. It's just, it's just personal. I just want to let you know, though, that as I'm sharing this truth with you, I needed this truth just as much as you. Did not come because this is the perfect spot and only perfect people can stand here. I came because it's through the victory of the cross. And I needed to be reminded after spending a week in this word that, Michael, you don't need to try to veg out on the couch. Remember your mother. Get a dusty rag and come, son. Let's talk. And I'm like, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you would love me that much to invite me into your presence, the devouring fire, the thunder that would make your bones rattle and your soul sink. Come on, son. Come to the mercy seat. Come to the throne of grace and find everything you need. Oh. I needed that. I need that. And I just don't believe that I'm alone. There's no place you can go. There's no one that can do it for you. But God invites you. The only one who can satisfy yourself. The only one who can meet your need. Man. So intimate. How do you take the glory of God and put it in a person? (laughs) Uh, To behold his beauty. And what I love about God is that when he could and when he should just cut me down, Michael, you know better. You've been preaching for the last five years, saved for 20. I still have to remind you to come get. Come over here, son. Sit down and let's talk. He's not. 
some warlord overlording of his people. He's a gracious and merciful God who invites us to come in and dwell with him because he wants to dwell with us. I still cannot make sense of it because on a human level, it doesn't make sense. I will connect with you. I will network with you if you can give me something is what man says. God says you can give me nothing and I need nothing from you, but I want to be with you. And I will make every way possible for that to happen. There's one thing you have to do. You've got to come. You have to come. You have to be willing to leave some things behind that may have looked good. Seemed nice. Could have possibly been close to the answer. Say, but nothing else. Nothing else will do. There's no one else that can meet my need. There's no one else then that I desire. And run. Run to the lover of your soul who first ran to you. So for a few moments, you and God, you know what it is that you need to leave behind. You know what it is that you need to take to the throne of grace, to the mercy seat. You know how desperately dependent you are. And God lets us know how dependable he is. Please. In these next few moments, not just passing the time by, may it be so intimate and personal that it seems like an interruption to sing, sing the next song. <clears throat> but I believe that the Lord carves out a space and he's carving it out right now for you to go to him with all your cares. And he promises to meet you there. So whatever your posture might be physically, if you need to kneel, don't worry about the person to the left or right of you. These chairs move. Move it out the way. Kneel. If you need to stand, stand. If you need to find a corner and just lay down, get in the corner and lay down. Don't worry about anybody else around you. Get what God's got for you today. He's created a space. I invite you to make your contribution. Bring yourself in. And let's pray before the Lord for the next.